Hey guys, and welcome back for an all new episode of our PMNR Lady Docs podcast. This is Trisha. Hi guys, this is Marjorie. Hi guys, this is Sheil. Hey everyone, it's Patricia. Today we'll be covering movement disorders and MS, but first our disclaimer. This is meant to serve as a study supplement in addition to your other study materials. You can be on the move while listening and give your eyes a rest. This podcast covers the major topics that are commonly seen, but does not include all of them. It is also not meant to serve as a medical diagnosis podcast. Please see your regular physician for appropriate evaluation and treatment. That being said, let's jump right in. And we're going to start with movement disorders. In general, movement disorders are a group of central nervous system neurodegenerative diseases that are associated with involuntary movements or abnormalities of skeletal muscle, tone, and posture. It predominantly involves your extrapyramidal system, for the most part, the basal ganglia. And for those that don't remember, what does your basal ganglia do? It's primarily inhibitory and it influences direction, amplitude, and your course of movement. Good. Your cerebellar function is also important in these disorders and it affects rapid corrections of gross motor movements and coordination. So for the most part, primary movement disorders are not associated with weakness or sensory loss. So now I'm going to just run through some definitions to refresh everyone's memory of different movements. Who remembers what chorea is? Chorea is brief, rapid, forceful, and dysrhythmic flinging of the limbs. It is non-stereotyped. It is unpredictable. It is jerky movements that interfere with purposeful motion. For example, it's the kind of movement in Huntington's disease. Good. For athetosis, that's a slow, writhing, involuntary movement and its inability to maintain the position of a limb or any other body part. It usually involves your face and the distal upper extremity. Then we have what's called hemibolismus. And what's that? It's a rare, sudden onset of violent, involuntary movements on one side of the body, usually unilateral and contralateral to the lesion, mainly of the arm, but can also involve the leg. And then we have tics. These are sustained, non-rhythmic muscle contractions that are rapid and stereotyped, often occurring in the same extremity or body part during times of stress. Who can tell me what akathisia is? It's reversible motor restlessness that's usually accompanied by a sensation of unpleasant inner tension or anxiety. It's actually often confused with psychotic agitation. Very true. Then we have our very well-known ataxia. This is a lack of accuracy or coordination of movement that is not due to paresis, alteration in tone, loss of postural sense, or the presence of involuntary movements. This is also the most important sign of cerebellar disease, but can also indicate problems in the dorsal columns or your peripheral nerves. For example, that'll fall under sensory ataxia. Or if it involves your vestibular system, that'll fall under vestibular ataxia. And that being said, you should review the different types of ataxia that you can see. Who can tell me what tremors are? Tremors are rhythmic, oscillatory movements of a body part. There are three different types. Resting tremor, essential tremor, and intentional tremor. Then we have our very famous myoclonus. That is your sudden, jerky, irregular, or periodic involuntary contractions of a muscle or group of muscles. And you should also review the details of myoclonus because that can fall under different categories as well. And then last but not least, we have dystonia. And who could tell me what that is? It's a sustained muscle contraction producing abnormal repetitive twisting movements of variable speeds that can lead to abnormal movements or posturing. 
It can be focal, segmental, or generalized. And the most common type is focal dystonia, cervical versus blepharospasm. And make sure to review the different types of cervical dystonia. Yes, that's very important. Okay, so that covers our movement disorders. Then we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about Parkinson's disease. This affects about 1% of the population over 60 years of age. And actually, Cucurillo has a really good table in Chapter 12. I think it's Table 12.3 um, that really breaks it down for us. Um, Parkinson's is an idiopathic disorder of the basal ganglia due to loss of your substantia nigra and your locus ceruleus cells where dopamine is produced. Um, there is also degeneration of the nigrostriatal pathway, and that's essentially from the substantia nigra to the corpus striatum, and that essentially leads to decrease in dopamine content in your corpus striatum. What we also find in our damaged cells are our famous Lewy bodies. So in general, the less amount of dopamine you have, you have the loss of inhibitory input to the cholinergic system, thereby allowing excessive excitatory output. And that's going to lead to an imbalance of excess cholinergic input relative to your dopamine input into your striatum. For the most part, male to female ratio is about three to two, 1% in persons over 50 years of age. What are our common signs and symptoms that we tend to see in patients with Parkinson's disease? Arresting tremor, pill rolling, and that's usually at about three to five hertz. You can also see bradykinesia or hypokinesia. You can see cogwheel rigidity. We can also have the mass facies, which is also referred to as hypomimia. I've never seen someone really with the lead pipe rigidity. Have you guys seen anybody with that? Not me. No. We also commonly see the fascinating or shuffling gait. For those that have a little bit more progression of their Parkinson's, they tend to have the postural instability or the loss of postural reflexes, thereby leading them to fall to the side or backward. There's also uh, people that have the what's referred to as a freezing phenomena, which is a transient inability of the patient to perform or restart a certain task. But it's also very important not to ignore signs of depression, dementia, or orthostatic hypotension in these patients as well. In terms of our medication treatment goals, we want to essentially increase the action of dopamine and decrease the cholinergic effect. And that goes back to what we were saying is the reciprocal um, relationship between uh, the imbalance with the excess cholinergic input into the system. A lot of the times, patients are giving L-DOPA in combination with carbidopa. Then we have uh, dopamine receptor agonists, and those are broken down into your ergot derivatives versus your non-ergot derivatives, and it's important to know those just in case they ask you a very direct question on boards. Um, example of your ergots are bromocryptine and pergolide, also known as Permax, and then your non-ergot derivatives are your Ropinarol or Requip, and your Primipexol or Mirapex. We can also use amantadine, although I don't really see, see that used commonly, but act, that acts primarily by potentiating the release of endogenous dopamine. Then you have our anticholinergic agents. These are your muscarinic receptor antagonists, and these are mostly used to help relieve tremors in patients. One cotton that I see used a lot is cogentin or your benchtropine. They also tend to use artane or trihexyphenidyl, procyclidine, which is chemadrine, and orphenadrine, which is disciple, which I don't, I haven't seen used at all, honestly, for uh, tremors. 
Then you have your inhibitors of dopamine metabolism, which is your selective MEOB inhibitors. So you have your selegiline and your resagiline. Just an important note about that, your MEOB isoenzyme is a predominant form in the striatum, and that's responsible for the majority of the oxidative metabolism of your dopamine in the striatum. So that's why we use those. Then you also have the COM-T inhibitors, and these are used as an adjunct treatment to your levodopa carbidopa. And that may allow a reduction on the levodopa dosage. And examples of those are your tocopone and your entacopone. Now moving into surgical treatments. This is mainly for patients that are diagnosed with advanced disease in whom medications are essentially ineffective or poorly tolerated. Patients with dementia or significant psychiatric or behavioral symptoms are not candidates for these surgical treatments. So you can have what's referred to as destructive surgery, and that's where you um, work on the thalamus or you get pallidotomies. Um, You can also do the deep brain stimulation where they're treating the thalamus, globus pallidus, interna, or the septalamic nucleus. There's been talk of possible tissue transplantation procedures, although I don't know how far along they are with those. And then you can also do cuminorolysis with Botox. So just keep those in mind when you're thinking about further treatments with patients with Parkinson's. In terms of rehab uh, treatments, you want to make sure that you are assessing what? The degree of rigidity, bradykinesia, and decrement in manual dexterity and how they affect ADLs. Good. And then with that being said, we're also going to be looking at if there's any adaptive equipment that our patients need. You want to make sure you're evaluating their gait, including their speed and the distance that they can actually travel. Uh, You want to assess their fine motor tests. You want to evaluate cognitive function if you feel that it's necessary. Um, Swallow evaluations are very important because you need to evaluate for oropharyngeal dysphagia. You can give uh, speech therapy for if there's any signs of dysarthria. If you have to give adaptive equipment in terms of for gait, the uh, wheeled walkers are preferred for these patients. Gives them more stability. And also you want to make sure that you put them on fall preventions. Like we said, they can have those t- the postural imbalance and they're liable to have a lot of falls while at home. So you want to consider a home assessment to f- modify any environmental factors for those patients as well. Now, in terms of like a differential diagnosis for Parkinson's, there are several types of situations where patients will exhibit Parkinsonian type symptoms. So we have the drug-induced Parkinsonism, and that's basically your exposure to drugs, for example, neuroleptic agents, metoclopramide, reserpine, amiodarone, lithium. You can have a toxin-induced Parkinsonism. You can have Parkinsonian symptoms from multiple lacunar strokes or a different type of CVA. Brain tumors could also do this. You have dementia pugilistica, which is also known as post-traumatic Parkinsonism. And that's basically Parkinsonism associated with repeated trauma to the head. And who could tell me a famous boxer that kind of falls into this category? Muhammad Ali. There we go. Um, if you notice him like later in life, before he passed away, he kind of exhibited a lot of these signs. Um, so he can probably fall into that category. There's also Parkinson plus syndromes. These are signs of Parkinsonism plus additional signs of neurodegenerative lesions. Um, These patients are poorly responsive to levodopa therapy with an overall worse prognosis than uh, general Parkinson's disease. They can also have progressive supranuclear palsy, which basically means that they can't look down, um, so they have a vertical gaze palsy. And then the Parkinsonian features are mainly with bradykinesia and axial rigidity way more than them exhibiting any type of tremors. And this is the most common. 
Then you also have the multi-system atrophy Parkinsonian type, and there's a subcategory of syndromes that fall under this. So you have the Shy-Drager syndrome, you have the olivopontocerebellar atrophy, and then you have the striatal nigral degeneration. So make sure you guys review those as well. Now we're going to switch gears and talk about MS. And who can tell me what MS is? It's an autoimmune disease of the central nervous system characterized by multiple white matter plaques of demyelination in the brain and spinal cord. Um, You have plaque formation that may recur and or enlarge with subsequent exacerbations over time. So everything that Dr. Javeri said is correct. And it's also referred to as an immune-mediated response as well that can cause the demyelination, the axonal damage, and the brain atrophy of your oligodendrocytes. So make sure you guys keep that in mind. The plaque formation essentially leads to conduction dysfunction, which leads to your issues with your action potential propagation. In patients that have acute lesions, remyelination may occur, and that leads to a remission of their symptoms. MS in general is the third leading cause of significant disabilities in those that are ages age 20 to 50 years old. Female to male ratios, two to one. It's more prevalent in Caucasians, way more than African-Americans and Asians, and it's mainly women of Northern European descent of uh, childbearing age. There are several theories of the pathogenesis of MS, and make sure you review those because there's no one um, consensus of the main cause of MS. Important to note when it comes to pregnancy and MS is that pregnancy will decrease your relapses, but then it's going to increase after delivery, and there's no change in long-term prognosis when it comes to this. There's six different types of patterns of MS. You have relapse and remitting, you have secondary progressive, you have benign, you have primary progressive, malignant, and then you have progressive relapsing. So who wants to tell me what the relapsing remitting is? It's the most common. 85 to 90% begin with this. Early exacerbation can usually be followed by complete remission and long periods of stability. It's also gender dependent. Female to male ratio is about two to one. Okay. And then we have the secondary progressive. Who can tell me what that one is? That is relapsing remitting that converts to steady deterioration with or without relapses. This is also gender dependent. Female to male ratio is two to one. Then we have benign MS. This is a functional 15 years after the onset of MS. Uh, These patients have mild symptoms. They can have early exacerbation and complete remissions with minimal or no disability. And then we have the progressive relapsing MS. Who can tell me what that one is? It's progressive disease with relapses with actually increasing degree of relapses and residual impairments. Correct. And then our primary progressive is what? It has an insidious onset with a steady progression of symptoms, few remissions and increasing disability. Progression to death can usually occur in weeks to months, and it's more common in older populations. The male-to-female ratio is usually one-to-one, 10% of cases overall, and it has the worst prognosis. And then we have our malignant MS, and this is basically just rapid and severe MS. There's really no other way to describe it. Um, In terms of your prognostic factors uh, for MS... Make sure you review those uh, as well in Cucurillo. Uh I do want to point out for prognos- pro- pro- for prognostic factors, focus on, if you remember anything, findings at onset. And you have good prognosis if the first findings are sensory, like optic neuritis. 
and you have poor prognosis if the first sign is motor, like ataxia and tremor. Absolutely correct. For signs and symptoms, those depend on the location of the lesion in your CNS white matter. Your onset of disease may often present as optic neuritis or transverse myelitis. Uh, in advanced stages, some present with the what's known as the Charcot triad, and that involves your scanning speech, your intention tremor, and nystagmus. Uh, you may also commonly see paresthesias and, and gait disturbances as initial signs. The most prevalent symptoms are what? Bladder and bowel dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, fatigue, and pain. Correct. A common sign that we like to refer to when patient we're looking at patients with MS is Lermit sign. And this is classically seen, but again, it's not pathognomonic for MS. And this is when you have passive neck flexion that essentially causes an electric shock-like sensation that radiates to the spine and shoulders, and it can also radiate to other areas. You can also have upper motor neuron signs, and you also have weakness and decreased sensation. In terms of the diagnosis of MS, um, review your McDonald's criteria. There's no other way to kind of put that. So just review that as much as you can. It's better for you to see that with your own own eyes instead of us kind of just talking it at you. Now, clinical findings when it comes to MS, your lesions are looked at in time and space. In space is by your MRI in at least two to four um, MS typical regions of the central nervous system or by a clinical attack which involves a different CNS site. And then in terms of time, you need to have a second clinical attack or new T2 and or gadolinium enhancing lesions. Now for time, it needs to be at least 30 days between attacks. So you essentially need to have two or more attacks with clinical evidence of two or more lesions. Patients can have neurologic deficits in two or more areas, reflecting white matter involvement at two points in time for more than 24 hours separately by one month. So that's putting all of that together. Uh, age of onset between 15 and 50 years of age, that, like we said earlier. Typically two separate lesions in which the symptoms cannot be explained by a single lesion is kind of what you're looking for. And you also need to have your objective deficits that you're gonna see on exam. Now we're gonna fall into the diagnostic studies. And who could tell me what the pathognomonic test for MS is? There is none. Perfect. Test results are nonspecific and they are interpreted within the clinical picture that the patient presents with. So your physical exam and history are going to be your moneymakers, guys. So if you're looking at someone's CSF, you're going to find oligoclonal IgG um, that's found in more than 95% of patients with clinically definite MS. Their presence in monosymptomatic patients predicts a high rate of progression to MS, but again, it doesn't mean that someone has MS. Then we have our visual evoked potentials. These have a high or low sensitivity? High sensitivity. Good, a high sensitivity along with MRI. And these are abnormal, meaning that they are increased or delayed, P100 latency in 85% of patients. Then we have something that's referred to as your brainstem auditory evoked response. I don't think anyone's ever done this. Uh, It's abnormal in about 67% of patients. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, if you've seen somebody use this when evaluating someone for MS. Then we have our very common SSCP. Those are your somatosensory evoked potentials. This is abnormal in 77% of patients. This is the most frequent abnormality in latency where you're going to have an increase or absence of component evoked um, by your tibial nerve stimulation. Now, 
when it comes to EMG nerve conduction studies. This is very important because I see a lot of, I guess, practitioners make the mistake thinking that an EMG is going to tell them that someone has MS definitively. And basically, in terms of your EMG nerve conduction study, they mainly assess your peripheral nervous system and MS attacks your central nervous system. So unless the MS is so progressed or they have lesions in their brain that are going to affect the peripheral nervous system, an EMG or nerve conduction study will not show any abnormalities, essentially. Again, unless, like I said, they have such a progressive form of MS that it is affecting the peripheral nervous system. There are cases where you have an effect on the peripheral nervous system, but again, an EMG nerve conduction study is not going to tell you if someone has MS. So just keep that in the back of your mind. I think it's important too to remember that when you are doing an EMG nerve conduction study on someone with suspected MS, that you might have some incidental findings of a cubital tunnel that they already had or a carpal tunnel that was pre-existing prior to this, um, completely unrelated and just not secondary to the MS, just two coexisting conditions. Very true. Now, our big one that we like to use is MRI, and that has the greatest sensitivity. That is the test of choice, period, when it comes to MS, because it's going to be able to show us white matter lesions that are seen in 90% of patients with MS. In terms of a CT scan, it's not effective in visualizing a lesion of the brainstem, the cerebellum, and the optic nerve. Uh, Cerebral atrophy is essentially your most common finding. So if you're evaluating for someone for MS, make sure it's with an MRI. Now, treatment for MS. During acute exacerbations, treatment should really include a comprehensive rehab program along with your various pharmacotherapies that may be needed. Medication-wise, we like to start with corticosteroids, mainly uh, methylprednisolone, and that's essentially used in short bursts for an exacerbation, which is new or worsening MS symptoms that are lasting for more than 24 hours. And it's not related to any type of metabolic factor, meaning if someone has an infection or stroke, renal failure, any number of things. What's the dosage for the methylprednisolone that we use, guys? 500 to 1,000 milligrams IV daily for three to seven days with or without an oral taper involved. Absolutely correct. Now, one thing to note, you do not use oral steroids for patients with optic neuritis. In general, the steroids will hasten their recovery from the exacerbation, but it does not prevent further attacks or alter the disease progression. Uh, Some people undergo plasma exchange. It may be beneficial if there's no response to uh, glucocorticoid treatment. The plasma exchange is more of an adjunctive treatment of exacerbations in patients with relapsing remitting MS. You can consider this if it's an acute exacerbation or severe deficits and poor response to high-dose glucocorticoids. Then you have your many immunomodulatory agents or your disease-modifying agents. There's a decrease in relapse rates with these medications and and they slow your brain lesion accumulation. And these are mainly your interferons, your Copaxone, Jelenia, Tecfidera, those medications. Your second line medications, these are typically reserved for those with an unresponsive disabling MS. And these ones, they're very hesitant to use because they come with any number of side effects. So you have your cyclophosphamide, your azathioprine, plasmapheresis, methotrexate, um, rituximab, and if any of you guys deal with patients that have 
rheumatologic diseases, we know that these meds come with a lot of side effects. Medication for gait speed. This is pretty much the only one that they use for that, and that's your Ampira or your Dalfimpridine. This is a broad-spectrum potassium channel blocker. The dosage that we use for that is 10 milligrams POBID. It improves walking and improves the speed in a third of patients, and there's a low risk of seizures with this medication. But it's just one to keep in mind if when you're assessing their gait and their walking speed, this may be a medication you can put on board for those patients. Patients also present with uh, neurogenic bladder dysfunction. You want to make sure you treat those accordingly. In terms of outcomes for MS, what's the percentage of patients that will have a normal life expectancy? 85%, so most of them will have a normal life expectancy. Awesome, and MS is seldom fatal, um, so that's, that's good to know. Um, and then you also have what's referred to as the minimal record of disability. This is the, the most common scale that they use to evaluate disability in MS patients is which scale? The Kurtzky Expanded Disability Status Scale, EDSS. Right, and that's the 10-level uh, rating scale that they like to use. Zero being normal and 10 being death. Four is severe disability, but they're still ambulatory without aid. And then eight is bedbound. So just keep that in mind if you do have to um, give somebody a disability rating in terms of uh, their MS. And that pretty much covers our podcast today on movement disorders and MS. Again, this serves as a supplement to your other study materials, and this should not take the place... (laughs) of your um, doing questions and reading everything that you need to read. Um, Hope you guys enjoyed it. The reference used for today's podcast is the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Board Review, third edition by Dr. Sarah Kukurula. PM&R Lady Docs makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. While the information contained within the podcast is believed to be accurate at the time of reporting, no guarantee is given that the information provided in this podcast is correct, complete, and or up to date. The materials contained on this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute medical or other professional advice on any subject matter. All information, content, and material of this podcast is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. If you're having a medical emergency, stop this podcast and call 911.